Why do we need a carbon tax? Why does it matter uh, what price we pay for all the goods and services? And why does it matter that this properly reflects uh, the cost and damage done by carbon emissions? Well, the answer to that question is really very much about the fundamentals of how an economy works. And put it the other way around, it's pretty hard to imagine any serious decarbonisation policy, let alone achieving net zero by 250, without a proper carbon price. An efficient economy, and it's obviously going to be a sustainable economy because if it isn't sustainable, it won't be sustained. An efficient economy is one where all the costs are taken into account. So when you buy anything from a shop, uh, that product had lots of costs involved in it. Workers, factories, machinery, travel, all sorts of stuff. Uh, and that's reflected in the price you pay. And of course, one of the costs of production is the emissions that are associated with doing it and all the other environmental uh, consequences. So they need to be internalised. They need to be taken on board. And in many respects, we already have carbon prices. When you uh, fill up your car with petrol or diesel, if you don't already have an electric car, you're paying a pretty high price for uh, those fossil fuels. And that's a proxy for a carbon price. And we do need to get serious about this because net zero is now the law in the UK. And that means that we have to find a way of getting there and we have to find a way that's going to be as cheap as possible because people don't have lots of money to spend on this uh, phenomenal transition in just 30 years that's now required. And uh, if uh, we ask too much of them, if we waste the average consumers and voters and taxpayers money, then they're going to rebel and we're not going to get there. So a sustainable economy, an efficient economy would have a carbon price. We have a mess of many existing carbon prices and we have an imperative to decarbonise as cheaply as possible. Those are the basics or the fundamentals to any consideration about why we might need a carbon tax. Now, lots of people come up with arguments as to why we shouldn't do this. They kind of get the big picture story, but they say, you know, well, that's academic, it's in theory, but, you know, the practical barriers are enormous. So let's just unpack some of those obvious objections. The first one, and it's an important one, is that if you don't have a carbon tax, you don't have a carbon price, then it's probably going to be more expensive to get to net zero. You, it's not that you, you know, just don't have a carbon tax and that's it. Then you have to find lots and lots of ways of implicitly getting there by subsidies, uh, supports for different technologies, supports for different markets, etc. And that's exactly what we've been doing. So the economy is riddled with feed-in tariffs, contracts for differences, uh, the old renewables uh, obligation uh, certificates, 
uh, and uh, all sorts of things that show up in the electricity bills in particular, which come via the central charges for transmission, distribution and so on. So it's not as if you aren't already paying for decarbonisation. And the truth is you're paying a lot. And uh, when I did the cost of energy review for the government, it was pretty much the case that of a £1,000 paid in an energy bill by a typical household, £200 were already the legacy costs from these interventions. So don't kid yourself that if you don't have a carbon price, somehow you escape the costs. It's almost certain they're going to be higher. And the next objection that people have is, well, you know, uh, we recognise that, um, you know, there might be a case, but, you know, the voters won't have it. And um, it's just too politically difficult. Well, that's got quite a lot of merit as a short-term expedient argument. But, of course, it assumes that the voters are going to have all the other costs that are going to be piled upon them, which are going to be higher than the carbon tax itself would have been. And I suspect that uh, when it comes to what in the newspapers are some kind, sometimes called lecky bills, they discover that there's quite a lot of resilience. So, uh, for example, when uh, Ed Miliband stood up to David Cameron, the issue at the top of the uh, agenda in the 2010 election was, well, electricity prices. Right? And the rebellion around that and, you know, something had to be taken off the bill uh, onto the exchequer to kind of patch that up. We had an energy price cap put in place uh, and so on and so forth. So the politics are tough either way. The political deceit in all of this is that we're told somehow that we can decarbonise and, you know, it ain't going to cost you very much. That was the kind of message of the Stern report. Uh, and indeed, some people argue, you know, this is all win, 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 and we're going to have cheaper energy and we're going to decarbonise. Well, you know, pigs might fly. Um, and of course, it's always possible that miracles happen. Uh, but when uh, uh, someone claims they've seen a miracle, uh, the philosopher David Hume famously said that, you know, you've got two options. You can either believe them or seek some other rational explanation. And I'm in the latter category. You know, what, what this is all about is not scaring the horses, committing people to a programme and then ex post the costs creep up upon them. I'm in the tell them the truth camp because uh, this is going to be a substantive and costly uh, transition. And if I'm right, then it really matters we do that as efficiently as possible. And the voters are going to have to come to terms with the fact that we are living beyond our carbon means and indeed we're living beyond our environmental means and therefore we have to rebase our consumption to a sustainable path. You might say that's never going to fly, but then what you're really saying is we're never going to do net zero. So if you care about climate change, if you think it's imperative that we address it, as I do, then these hard truths, these inconvenient truths, have to be told to the public and politicians have to grow up and get in on the act. Now, another objection out there is that, well, you know, 
it's all very well, but um, it's going to destroy our industry. You know, our industry can't afford to uh, pay uh, higher carbon prices. It can't thereby compete in international markets. Well, here there are a couple of things to say. The first thing is that not all business trades. Uh, the second thing is to say that there are lots of businesses that are growing and expanding because they're in the low carbon business. Uh, that's their market. That's their opportunity. And actually, to add to that, of those companies that trade, the big ticket story is that we have to apply the carbon price to the border so that imports are treated on exactly the same basis as domestic production. That's a border adjustment. It then means that we have a uh, carbon consumption target because all of our consumption is caught within the umbrella of the carbon price and there's no competitive disadvantage to our exporters. Unless you do that, you just export uh, carbon emissions to countries like China, who then have an artificial subsidy in competing back in the United Kingdom going forward. And in my Net Zero book, I set out very clearly what that uh, carbon consumption target should look like. But, you know, the industrialists are right. You do need to address uh, imports and international trade. And there is a right answer to that, which is that at the border, you need to charge the carbon uh, price to the imports of steel as well as the steel produced domestically. And it's not rocket science. It doesn't have to be perfect. It's better to be roughly right than precisely wrong. And uh, much of our carbon imports come through a small number of key internationally traded commodities uh, and goods. And um, we can address those uh, just as easily at the border as we can by looking at a steelworks in the UK um, or uh, other comparative manufacturing activities. Lest you do that, you simply wipe out uh, British industry. So a carbon tax has to be done sensibly. A final objection is the poor can't pay. And that may well be true. But that's true for the water bills. That's true for paying for uh, the latest sports package for broadband. It's true for paying for uh, mortgages, rents, etc., etc. And that is a distributional question. And the great merit of the carbon tax approach is that it precisely raises the money so you can decide who uh, actually ends up being helped out through the Social Security, through the uh, various interventions we rightly have to help our citizens who are less well off in the society. So that's perfectly solvable. And, and another way of putting that to say is, if you believe that you're not going to compensate the poor, and you believe that the poor are an overwhelming barrier to having carbon pricing, then what you're really saying is, we're not going to do net zero. We have to do the distributional stuff and the decarbonisation, and there's nothing inconsistent with having the right price for carbon to achieve that. Now, how do we do this? Well, some people say, you know, that, well, we're already there, aren't we? Because there's the EU ETS, the EU Emissions Trading Scheme. And can't we just write that across to us? And indeed, the Treasury has come up with three possible proposals post-Brexit transition, just shadowing the EU ETS, inventing our own ETS and the carbon tax. Now, if you look at those, 
The EU ETS is not an example any sensible person would really want to follow. It was instead of a carbon tax, it was heavily lobbied for, and the reason it was lobbied for by the polluters was that they got grandfathered the permits, they could stick them on their balance sheets, there were barriers to entry, and as became abundantly clear, the EU ETS produced a low and volatile price, which had virtually no serious impact on the polluters and no serious impact on emissions. Ah, but the supporters of the EU ETS say that's in the past, of course, but, you know, it's going to be different in the future. Why? Oh, well, we, the Commission, are going to manipulate the number of permits to jack the price up. Well, that's just an extremely expensive way of having a carbon tax. And it defeats the very purpose of the permits, which is to establish the quantity and let the market uh, provide the price. Actually, what's going to happen is they're going to doctor the permits to produce the price. And my answer to that is, why go through all this hassle of the administration, the trading, the indeed the fraud, everything else around it, when you can just simply go straight to the carbon price itself? So if post-Brexit transition, we do the sensible thing and go for a carbon tax and uh, uh, move towards a uniform carbon price throughout the economy, so bring transport and agriculture into the frame, what about uh, the immediate implement implementation? My answer to that is pretty straightforward. You know, it's not where you start that matters. It's that people credibly believe that you're going to adjust the price to whatever levels necessary to meet the overall carbon targets. And so what should you do? Well, the obvious thing to do is use the current EU ETS price as the starting price. Have that for a couple of years so that uh, there's no disruption to immediate expectations. And then gradually roll out the carbon tax across the economy more generally and really importantly into transport and heating and especially into land use. Get the carbon offsets market going for natural carbon solutions and so on and so forth and uh, develop the framework and credibility around the instrument. After all, although that would not be perfect, it would be a massive improvement on taking over an EU ETS over which we had no influence or control in the future. And uh, God forbid that we go down the route of developing our own ETS. We did that once before uh, under uh, Margaret Beckett's term at uh, what was uh, then the DTI. Um, and uh, we managed to uh, spend a lot of money on factories and plants for companies which arguably would have closed anyway. So the case for a carbon tax is very strong. It's not a sufficient condition to address climate change, but it's certainly necessary. And when you look at all the objections that people bring forward, they're really special pleading. And the worrying thing is that behind them lies the idea that we can't afford the costs of decarbonisation and therefore we must shy away from being explicitly exposed to those costs. Well, at the end of the day, either you want to do net zero or you don't. If you do, it's beholden to find the cheapest and most efficient method of getting there. So let's do it. Let's have a carbon tax. 
Thank you for listening.